0: Um, I have a knack for thinking in systems. Um, I'm not sure why it is, maybe it's left-handed, but I got it got reinforced several times and the way it got reinforced is I handed over the books I learned from this is Dennis Sherwood, you know, seeing the forest from the trees to other people saying, Read this. They came back and said we couldn't make it work. I said, Why can't you make it work? What is so hard about forming a causal loop diagram versus a linear? We said we don't know. They're like, hmm that doesn't seem hard to me. And so that started a process of saying, Well, wow, if if I can think in these loops and connect systems together, I wonder what happens next. Right? And so that stuck with me and that's stuck with me for now 20 years. And so, you know, I've acquired more skill in that. And I enjoy the fact that you can zoom out all the way and it still makes sense. Normally when you zoom out, you lose the resolution; resolution, right? things become smaller. In systems, when you zoom out, the systems connect and you see larger systems at work. Right? It's like a series of Matushka dolls. Every system feeds something to the next level system all the way down to the smallest.
1: Hello, everyone. Welcome to your brand new podcast called In Your Shoes. This podcast is for you to learn more about new people and professions from around the world. I would like to take you on a journey to understand the life and times of a new person every two weeks and get a chance to get into their shoes to learn what they do, why they do, and how they do it. On the show today, I have Rana, who is currently the head of learning experiences at SAP Academy of Engineering. I met Rana years ago at a service design competition And I found him to be a really passionate user experience designer and a deeply thoughtful person. I enjoyed so much working with him at that time that we kept in touch. And my previous guests in the podcast really asked me to get him on the show. And I'm so fortunate that I finally uh, got the opportunity to get Rana as a guest today. So welcome to the podcast, Rana.
0: Thank you. By the way, like I was telling you, I ain't so busy. It's just the time zone that was the problem. (laughs) I would love to say my calendar is so filled out, vague. No, that's not true. I also think that everybody, your previous guest was probably on the same team too, no? From the service jam? Yeah, he was. (laughs) Yeah, that was such a fun time. Okay, let's chat. What would be useful?
1: Yeah, I mean, before we get into interesting stuff, we start with uh, if you could just introduce yourself to our audience, like who you are, where you come from, and what are you doing for your living.
0: So, um, first of all, thank you for having me. It's fun to be able to reflect back and and be asked questions. It's a rare privilege. So, hi, I'm Rana. Um, I am um, well. My title says I'm you know director of learning experiences, but I have three careers, and this is the third one. I've been in business for a bunch of years. I've then been an engineer for about seven, and then I've been a designer for for more than a decade now. Um, And where I'm right now is an evolution of of where I started. The goal was always to be useful with whatever skills I have, and um, I work at the Academy for Engineering at SAP, and it's basically um, a unit within this. It's Well, you can think of it as a unit, but it's actually a small organization within the organization responsible for um, bringing back pride in engineering at sap so we're not the only one doing it but essentially we think we are responsible for creating next generation of engineers you know multi-dimensional engineers as we call it and my role within that is to kind of craft um, the curriculum but also exactly how the programs would operate what the experience is like so that's why it's think of it as learning design and learning engineering could
1: you share a little bit about uh first of all i really liked this concept of bringing pride uh, back to engineering and uh what is what do you mean by a multi-dimensional engineering or engineer in this mm, case
0: mm. so um we realized, and probably you not know, the only one, the SAP finds itself in a situation where it needs to look at it. But I think most engineers get to this point on their own, which is, well, the skill sets we need in the future are so different from the skill sets we've been used to in the past. SAP is the equivalent of Apple for enterprise. It's vertically integrated. It's all its proprietary stuff. And now we're moving to the cloud. And we've done a bunch of acquisitions that put us in a good position, but the engineers need to transition culturally as well. And we realized that this is both very new and very old. Um, By that, I mean, when we started out as a company in 72, everybody did everything. There was no distinction between understanding the customer, designing it, making it, you know, giving feedback. It was basically the same thing. And you invented the technologies you needed. But as we grew, we've forgotten what it's like We become siloed like any other company does. And um, in some sense, the best engineers I've ever worked with always had more than engineering to them. You know, some of them was a nuclear physicist who was doing quality. One of them had spent a whole bunch of years doing his PhD in humanities, but also coded. So a multidimensional engineer is an engineer who has more than code to speak for. Mm -hmm. And we think of these as five values, by the way. We think of them as five Cs. And these Cs represent these values which you think are essential for being multidimensional. They are, and they're paired. One is courage and curiosity. They're internal attributes. And courage is kind of the mother of all attributes, right? Without that, nothing else works. Curiosity, because we are expecting engineers um, to keep learning because there is a half-life to your knowledge. It will fade out every two and a half years to three years, and it's shortening, 18 months now. And how do you keep learning unless you have curiosity? It's a skill. It's not a skill. It's a trait that's been um, dialed down because of the education and work systems, but it's present to all of us. So that's two. The other two are community and compassion. We think, this is the quirk of the group I work with, but compassion is not just good, it's good business. It allows for psychological safety. We know that's a, a leading indicator of how innovative, teams can be and it also is a way to deal with conflict so when you're dealing with multiple technologies integrating them from diverse sources you need to have courage to stand up for a conviction but compassion to accept the difference so we think compassion is important and community are giving so these are the the traits we look for and we put them through you can think of it as a pressure chamber where these traits are amplified into actual behaviors so Curiosity becomes you know learning agility, courage becomes risk taking ability and so on and so forth. so that's our definition of multi dimension, but the basic idea is straightforward if you are full rounded well rounded as an engineer, you understand technology, you understand humanities, you understand business, you're probably in the best possible place to be future proof
1: Wow, I think I, I am really inspired by the facets of this multi dimensional engineer. Um, I wanted to spend so much time really going into each of these aspects with you, but we'll get there. Mm. But uh, I want to first start, this is actually a very interesting job, um, you know, really helping uh, the engineers to expand their understanding of what engineering is really is and giving them aspects of the the facets that you talked about which i think mm. some of us are not trained in a typical you know educational environment where we come from so mm. i'm very curious like um for you to be in this position to drive this work mm. share a little bit about how did you land up here especially in this particular role
0: mm. um I would be lying if I said I planned it. Um, I would. The best thing I can think about, and this is probably a pattern for my career, is um, this is like falling upwards. It feels like the process is organic rather than analytical. It is synthetic <laughs> rather than planned, and by that I mean, um, if you look at what it takes to put together an experience for engineers which is multi-dimensional and you know everybody in the team is like that we we live the stuff we try and teach and if you can't live it we can't teach it and so that puts us in a in a position of having to know what we are trying to teach for really well and so because i've been an engineer and developed you know enterprise applications for about seven years because i have been a designer who's worked on the research on the interaction design I didn't do visual design. I realized I have to go to college for that. Um, it's way out of my league, um, or needs more time. Um, I arrived eventually through the process, and, and I started teaching the design process first within the company, then to the startups. That's how, you know, we met in some sense. Um, I realized I really enjoy um, simplifying what is a complex process, design. And the teaching was kind of natural to me. So that that strain came from there. Then I also have as an as an engineer, you know, you know this, as an engineer, kind of purity, you know, rigor, discipline, structure. This is all stuff that is 101 for engineering. That stayed with me as a designer. And as a designer, I enjoy minimalism, purity, right? And so that I picked up from a career as a designer. So when I now design experiences, it has structure. We design experiences that last six months and it's intense and they're immersive. I, you know, I simplify when I teach, I simplify what I'm trying to teach down to its essence. Um, so, you know, we have an alternative way of teaching design. We call the personal workflow. It's based on the idea of a hypothesis and a bet which comes from the world of startups. Um, and this, you know, finish that comes from a good design is all all of that from being a designer, which is I want the experience to be perfect. And I realized that I swing between two states. I enjoy the very big, the complex, the systems part, and I enjoy the very small, like, I'm just as happy hacking the coffee machine and making work better as I am, you know, intervening a company and finding how do you shift culture. So all of this is it's 2020 looking back, but going forward, it feels like you arrive at a place where you've run out of steam for the current job and you're looking for something new and you don't know what it is. And in that gap, which is scary you know, you ask people what's up and you search and you do some soul searching and diary writing and resumes and so on and so forth and then a direction appears. So making it sound more glamorous than it really is is nightmarish going through it. But it's become easier to know that, well, everything has a lifespan and that typically it's about two to three years before you have to reinvent yourself. And the only thing I've held together is I like to build on what I've had before. I don't like throwing stuff away. So what have I learned as an engineer? What have I learned as a designer? And how do I bring this into teaching? And it just turns out by, you know, having done it, I enjoy the teaching process and I enjoy crafting an experience that feels like it has flow. And it's a long-winded answer and I'm slightly caffeinated, so apologies. But that's the best I would say I can explain the mess that is my career.
1: Oh, thank you so much. I think um, I, yeah. I really enjoyed actually going through that uh, answer of yours. And I was just thinking about like, what should I not ask here? Like it's so much of things packed up in that answer, but I want to really, I want to just stay on a particular point around sure. uh, the aspect of enjoying the big and the small, yeah. um, I also like the example you mentioned about, you know, hacking the coffee machine and also interviewing the shift culture. Mm. Let's keep for a moment this as the anchor and Mm. uh, tell us a little bit about uh, why is this enjoyable for you? First, this Mm. going from very big to very small. And secondly, Mm. what have you learned uh, from doing this, from practicing this, which has... Mm -hmm. uh, positively affected your life today.
0: Mm. Mm. Thank you. That, I think that's the privilege of being interviewed, that I'm forced to find answers for things that I've done intuitively. So, you know, since the time we know each other, which must be, God, it must be 15 years or more, no, 10 years at least. 10 years, How long have yeah. we you known years, 10 years, right? 10 years. Since the time that I know you, I know Dushant, everybody else on that group, um, I have been pursuing a thread of systems thinking. And I realized that, um, I have a knack for thinking in systems. Um, I'm not sure why it is. Maybe it's left-handed, but I got, it got reinforced several times. And the way it got reinforced is I handed over the books I learned from, this is Dennis Sherwood, you know, seeing the forest from the trees to other people saying, read this. They came back and said, we couldn't make it work. I said, why can't you make it work? What is so hard about forming a causal loop diagram versus a linear? You say, we don't know. They're like, hmm, that doesn't seem hard to me. And so that started a process of saying, well, wow, if, if I can think in these loops and connect systems together, I wonder what happens next. Right? And so that stuck with me and that stuck with me for now 20 years. And so you know I've acquired more skill in that. And I enjoy the fact that you can zoom out all the way and it still makes sense. Normally, when you zoom out, you lose resolution, resolution, right? things become smaller. And when you zoom out, the systems connect and you see larger systems at work. Right, it's like a series of matrushka dolls. Every system feeds something to the next level system, all the way down to the smallest. That is fascinating for me. That, and you start seeing larger and larger effects. An example of this would be, um, well, just what we're seeing right now with the environment. Right, we have essentially triggered this with carbon extraction. We've heated up the environment. You would think it's innocuous to just, yeah, more cars on the road, big deal, you know, smokestack. But it adds up and it has massive consequences for life on the planet. But it's the underlying system is extremely simple. You've just over you know overheated the system. The oceans aren't capable of keeping that much of heat. And so now there is no place for the heat to go. And so now it's coming back on us. And so that approach is super interesting for me. Um, and the way I applied that was I said, well, I like that, Rana, but who the heck is going to give you a job? <laughs> right. Uh, because jobs are built around getting stuff done. And so the way I approach that, I would always look for the other end. I, I enjoy creating flow, right? So you can think of this as two states of flow. One state of flow is a very small. If your coffee machine is broken and I fix it and you have a more pleasurable coffee making experience, you feel good about it. It's an important part of your day. And I get a kick out of that too. Um, and we actually did it in, in SAP. We fixed it. There was nobody using the coffee corner. We we did a bunch of things, right? We made a little boundary so people who were actually hanging out for that to pass through. We made lines like, you know, the markers on the road which says slowly and fast lane. We made the coffee machine quieter. We put a juicing machine and suddenly the cafe was buzzing. That is great fun to see because you have lifted human energy. And systems is cognitive flow. You can make meaning at very high levels, where you can see connection between things that don't seem connected. And suddenly you're like, oh, wow, if I wiggle this end of the planet, that end of the planet is affected as well. Right? So, and so that's why I keep popping between these two. And the advantage of that is you can get into the weeds with detail and get lost, which is natural because you get sucked into a certain technological challenge or, you know, or a design challenge. But when you pull back, meaning gets made. And if you pull back further, purpose emerges. Like why are we doing all this stuff? What is the point of all of this stuff? Right. And the systems viewers help me identify purpose. And so when we realized, and purpose is really simple, the way I think of it, right? It's it's stuff that you feel makes a difference in your world. And so for us, helping engineers become multidimensional is purpose. It's super simple to say, it's hard to do, but the impact on it is enormous if we can pull it off. And so how the heck do you do that? You know, so that's, from that abstracted view, we think of the academy as an intervention, it is one piece of a very large machine, there are other people doing the same thing. We zoom all the way down to how do you teach, and we keep structure, we saying every 10 minutes, your teaching time is 10 minutes, and something else has to happen. And so you can think of this as a zoom lens, the ability to zoom all the way down, to the lowest level and zoom all the way up and it's valuable if you can do it I think life and education forces you to be stuck at like 1x, 2x or 5x zoom but if you can go to you know 0.5x and 2000x you have that much more flexibility to play with so this may be gibberish so you should call me out <laughs> like no no what
1: no no I liked I liked where you're going with that and I actually have a follow up for that so so if I come to you and say, you know, Rana, I would love to groom this style of thinking in terms yeah. of systems, mm. and I'm I'm sorry, I'm taking a tangential view oh, right yeah. now. Uh, what would be your advice for me? And I'm I'm coming with the same background yeah. as you, perhaps an engineer, yeah. but you know, uh, I'm, I'm lost. Mm. So I like what you yeah. said, but I'm also very mindful that I need yeah. this and I want to groom this. How do you, What do you would advise me to go back and do stuff or get experiences where I can groom this systems thinking in myself? Mm-hmm.
0: Good question. Thank you. Um, so I'll tell you what I've tried doing so far and kind of the limits of that. So because it comes intuitive to Intuitively, caffeine, intuitively to me, um, the teaching part has helped to kind of make the intuition obvious to somebody else can learn it. So the way I do it is, of course, it helps to have a good primer. And the book I started with, I mentioned before, was Dennis Sherwood. Uh, It's, I think it's a manager's guide to systems thinking. It's not even like a full book, right? But it's fabulous because it introduces how causal loop diagrams work, you know what is the reinforcement loop, what is the balancing loop, basic language. But the way I introduce it is I disguise this guy's systems thinking. Um, by that I mean, it drives people crazy that um, things are not linear, right? We like things to be linear and seeking a goal and ending at that goal, yet everything that you see in nature is exactly not that. Right And and I love the word. So, this is this, uh, you know, I I helped a couple of schools redesign their uh, teaching experience. And so, we formed a group that talks often. One of them offered a word, saying, Nana, have you heard of the word called equifinality? I said, No, what is it? He said, It's from systems. I said, oh, Let me look it up. And I did. And here's the difference between the word goal and equifinal a goal is how a linear system operates, right? It's cause and effect, cause and effect, and it ends at one goal. An equifinal system has multiple paths to the same end state, right? And you are an equifinal system, and I'm an equifinal system. So creativity is multiple ways to the same end state, and that is how reality works, nature works. And the way I would do that is I would start creating these experiences where people um, go through the illusion of linearity, but then they deal with feedback loops. So I would say, well, just find one path through the system. How does that work? Okay. Now, if you loop back here to the start, what happens next? Oh, you know, it changes the initial conditions. Oh, I understand. How does it change? Now go again. So all that to say that the way I would do it now, if I was to teach it to somebody or say, go do it, is pick a problem that feels a little like higher order for you, right? So if you're dealing with purely technical problems, zoom back a little bit and try and find um, a higher order technical problem, one that connects to other domains. And and by the way, we have plenty. Just take two disconnected things, take uh, systemic racism, and take financial incentives. Okay, and now try and connect these two concepts, and see how they connect. They are connected for sure, but how are they connected? Or take um, policy, right? You know, um, and that's that's your. Dishwasher, and this is my dishwasher. Her name is Champ. She loves anything that's on the floor, and so you will hear in the background too. Um take and there is a couple of good tools I can recommend later, right? Um, but take any two concepts which feel interesting to you and try and find a relationship between them and map it. In the process, you'll realize that it's not a linear connection between these two things. Right? There are things that loop back, things that loop forward, and as they start looping, strange effects occur. So let's do a thought experiment. I'm doing this on the fly, so forgive me if it doesn't work out. But I was trying to map the connection between... Um, so this was a little while earlier. Let's take um, gun violence and um, democracy. Okay, So Second Amendment and gun violence. So arguably in America, where I'm right now at the moment, you know, Second Amendment gives you the right to bear arms. By itself, if you go one step forward, that's not a bad thing because at the time it was constructed, you know, America essentially was occupied by the British and they revolted and they said, you know, it's a right to bear arms. Not a bad thing. The effect of that has been that an entire um, uh, industry arrived that allowed you to make guns because guns were going to be sold and bought because of that war arrived at some point and a military industrial complex was set up where essentially the private manufacturers were making guns for the government. Given that America, one more factor in this conversation is that America is highly competitive and um, highly individualistic, right? And it's the really opportunity-driven market mechanics. So given the lever of market mechanics, this became a system where guns were created originally for wars, but now war had to be created for guns. The dynamic flipped, right? That led to a crazy situation that now you changed policies so that you can sell more guns whether or not there is a war. And as I go through this experiment, you can see, Ooh, this is not a straight path. This is all nonlinear stuff. Right? One thing is affecting the other, then the second thing affects the first back. That changes how all of this operates. What the heck is going on? Right? So if you take two of these things and try and join them, you'll get a first glimpse of, oh my God, real life complexity is more than just one leads to the other. And that's the first step, right? If you find yourself um, hankering for more, then that's a step that you should take. If you find like, hmm, no, this, like in the Gita, right? Um, Arjun saying, dude, take it away. It's too much. I, I can't bear to then that's okay back to the existing world we would recognize that that's a preference right and so therefore i think the limitation of this kind of thinking is that you must have a high tolerance for ambiguity because you're trying to really think through stuff that nobody has asked not even you does that make any sense
1: yeah it does and you know i have a follow-up to that and um to my understanding, this is a fantastic way of thinking how things are connected. Um, And I think a lot of, if I reflect on what you just said, I think a lot of my early education, I think uh, the industrialized education environment, we are so much fond of this linear uh, relationship between events and we focus so much on linearity that i think we lose out this thinking yeah. um so from your uh, essence and i'm again uh, i i think I, I like spending time here because it's such an interesting topic and i'm okay my my listeners would also enjoy this i hope i hope you don't know um, we'll find
0: out <laughs> it may be like three yeah, people but I, I think
1: but i trust i trust my audience yeah. um and obviously, I'll get to know for my sure. feedback. Uh, uh, what do you think, apart from you know my my naive explanation mm-hmm. that it's the industrialized ac- academic situation that's leading us not to think mm-hmm. like this? What else is fueling um, this mm-hmm. uh, aspect of us going? Not thinking about through systems but rather just stucking with the linear thinking and linear relationship between mm. systems
0: thank you so this will blow into a mini systems conversation so let's jump into it and see how it goes but but um i feel this is the quality of conversation that I, I think is really useful in these times right i mean just look at here we are in america and we realize that oh my goodness this is potentially two countries with two different value systems and how would you navigate this so It's valuable to think like this. Um, And the power of a naive question is that it forces you to ask a very basic question that gets lost in all of this stuff. So I'm I'm totally for like naive questions to blow apart all this expertise. So it's a good start point, right? Saying, okay, where did this all begin? And the thing I've realized in, in systems is that individually, each of the vectors or the moves are not intended to be bad. They're intended to be useful at the time. So to give you an example, the um, the industrialized education system was essentially the move away from the agrarian system. So you wanted to create masses of people who could work in a factory. And so you need to give them reading, writing, arithmetic. And that was needed. That was a huge improvement at the time. It's like the McDonaldization of education. right? That's all they knew. And I, the, the group I was talking about mentioned that at some point we had a huge influx of, of children in America and they had to be educated. And all America knew was the, the manufacturing process. So they applied it. So it was a great solution for the time. But the consequence of that, and we don't know enough about human potential to do anything else. Right? The consequence of the time is that people essentially got put into a batch mode. Right? And then we know the consequence of that. The one teacher teaching everybody like everybody learns the same way. The other thing, though, is, now let's say you try and snap out of that. You, you go through the system, you realize ah, something within you still doesn't want to give up your interest. You know this is not right for you. You go through your career. Um, linearity, so you can think of this as left brain and right brain. Linearity is useful because things move. At least you can take a step at a time, and it's predictable. And you know the next step is whether it's right or wrong, it's the next step. And that is very powerful at a psychological level because none of us like uncertainty. So there is also the psychological impetus to get to some place useful and then look back and say, oh, I need to take a left or a right. But linearity gives you that. So when you start um, teaching this style, it feeds into that style of thinking, saying, oh, man, I've achieved it. All the chaos was worth it, but now I have a degree. Right. Oh, the pain was worth it, but now I'm a VP or whatever that is. You forget that when you went through the path, it was actually a completely non-linear process. How you arrived at the job, the opportunities you got, the bet that a company took on you, why you got the job in the first place, the next gig that happened, they were all nonlinear. Right? So that's one overriding factor I think about, which is our desire for certainty. The other thing that happens, I think, is, and this is probably, you know, is a cultural element, which is does a Culture tolerate a certain amount of ambiguity in conversation. That doesn't have to be hyper-precise. So in some sense, you can think of this as India and or an Eastern and Western thing, right? If you have a Western mindset which is linear, and if you're in America, you can see everything works, everything clicks through, right? It is clean, sterile sometimes in the Bay Area, but everything works. It is an embodiment of this kind of thinking. It's much harder to introduce this in America because, like, dude we are what we are because we got so far with linear thinking. That seems chaotic to me. If you think of Eastern philosophies, mystical philosophies, we look at non-linearity constantly. We think of Kal Chakras. We are in the Kal Yuga. Everything is circular. You know, Everything comes around. And so we are used to thinking of what goes around comes around. <laughs> that karma and a greater accounting system, things like that, right? So it is built into us to expect ambiguity. Life is not certain. Could be sakta hai, or anything can happen. So your culture has a great effect. On that. And so that's why I feel um, the Eastern parts of the world have a more philosophical view on this, and it's easier for them to slip into this kind of thinking, saying, Yeah, sure, we don't know anything or everything. Let's see what the connections might be and let things emerge. And so that brings me to the third aspect, which is we really, really dislike being in any kind of a void, right? This inability. Apart from wanting predictability, the thing we abhor the most, and you can test this in conversations. Just be silent for a while and see who jumps into it. Right? We do not like empty spaces. It is very uncomfortable. Yet, if you are creative, you know that all your originality came from the empty place. You had to be required because some synthesis happens in the background. Right? Some connections happen outside of a line of sight, and that really is your the system's part of your mind, the right brain working. And that has not been, traditionally arts has not been a part of education. It's been considered, they are the poor stepchild, you know, they, who does arts, you know? They're like a poor painter. Yet arts, philosophy, those things are essential. Humanity is essential for developing this part of yourself, which understands the writer's process. Like I do morning pages, right? It comes straight out of Julia Cameron's writer's, the book on the writer's process. So multiple things like i said this was a rabbit hole but you could say that the structure that was introduced was one factor which just fed into a psychological need like god we have structure (laughs) Uh, cause and effect is reverse we had to have structure because we need it how else would you teach people but the fact that the culture values it harder to snap out of it the fact that we have a bias towards certainty makes it even harder the nice thing, though, is that the, way the world we're in right now, so much of it is non-linear. You have no choice but to deal with it. Right? So you may be forced to confront the fact that the choice you make on what like you put has consequences for the society you live in. This is a strange moment to be in, right? That, that one little thumbs up, what difference does it make? One like button? Significant, because it'll feed you back stuff that only you like and put you in a bubble. Right? So you may have to be... Forced to be cognizant, like, "Ooh, this action could have crazy consequences." Let me think for a minute. Okay, I'll stop rambling. What do you think?
1: I think uh, I really like the emphasis on being or taking a pause before you jump into things. I think that pause, that moment between the actions, is a great opportunity. And as you just said, the the space where you're not talking and you take your silence. Um. I think this whole aspect of this dopamine kicks that we get today through different mediums has reduced the margin and the opportunity to take that pause. Yeah. Um, And I think even if we start doing it little mindfully, the taking that pause really allows us to think things differently. And I think that may be the start yeah, of realizing that there is more to just the immediate action of what I'm doing. Yeah, there are aspects of stuff which I haven't thought about, and I need to be more deliberate. Yeah, and um, yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I that's the if that's the feeling that comes to my mind when you are yeah. talking about uh, this whole process.
0: Yeah. So let me build on that briefly. Um, I think what you're saying is really important because. As a species, we can be socialized as easily as we can be desocialized. So our ability to think abstract, think in higher order, deal with ambiguity is like a muscle. It is learned because it's uncomfortable and it can be unlearned and forgotten as well. So the next generation, which works only on text, and this was Vincef talking about it at some point, that they have a problem with face-to-face conversations because it's not they don't have as much time to write out a text which they're used to right and so the chemistry of real life conversations is it's ambiguous it is funky. it goes sideways sometimes and that's what real life is like but they don't like it and that has huge consequences for civilization if everybody's looking at the phone it seems innocuous but consider the long-term consequences and so making a pause critical thinking these are like hugely significant things which all have, you can see, non-linear effects, positive and negative, right? We can talk about that at some point, like what are the positive and negative side effects long-term. That's why I feel it's so important for people to not just think in systems, but kind of know that, um, it's like Elon Musk had said, right? Technology doesn't improve by itself. Left to itself, it even becomes worse, rocketry, right? Human beings don't improve by ourselves, you know? Left of feedback loop, We'll even desocialize, we'll become isolated, we'll become self-centered. It's the feedback loops of socialization that keep us growing. And so if you change that, you make it about me and dopamine hits, it's dangerous for the rest of us.
1: Right. And I want to tie back uh this interesting uh you know rabbit hole conversation to why I think the work that you're doing is so uh, remarkable and also uh, serving the long term because I think this whole aspect of systems thinking and be building or making engineers be multi-dimensional really pays off mm. um, because ultimately that will create new generation of thinkers mm. that will inspire and build the next generation so I mm. really see the value of the work that you're doing thank you and with that, I want to just slowly get us back yeah. to your your life and if you could share a little bit about what is a day in your life uh, as a person who is running uh, this academy?
0: It's like being in a call center in Bangalore. I think that's everybody's <laughs> life these days. You can't <laughs> tell morning from night, uh, hmm. day from evening. Um, it's my, my efficiency with meetings has gone up. But uh, if you ask me in COVID times, yeah, it's pretty much like I emphasize deeply with the folks who work in the call center now. But on a good day, I would say it's, you know, I'm kind of, you know, I hack my routines all the time. and I've been reading about this for years. The last book on this was uh, Make Time by um, Jake Knapp and uh, Jake Zeratsky, uh, ex googlers super book. So the way I I think about my work is I leave my conversations for the afternoon. Um, my golden hours are about 8 to 11. So that's when I get the most amount of energy for creative work. And so, uh, you know, that book suggests having one big thing you want to focus on, uh, the highlight of, the, of your day. And so I try and keep it for that. This is, by the way, an ideal day. It doesn't work like this all the time. But on an ideal day, I keep time for that. And that's usually some form of writing some form of synthesis or some form of outlining some material that i'm hoping to create anything that forces me to kind of work in a synthetic mode right it's not unless i'm like right in the middle of a program where responsiveness is important then i'm responding to mails thoughtfully but otherwise i'm trying to not do mails and think about well you know how should we teach engineers what Um, how do you validate experiments let me do an outline for that or let me find out if i know how to use camtasia and uh, you know just improve the transition a little bit so either i'm trying to up the level of production on what i'm doing or you know try i have you know speaking to a startup and i'm wondering how people go to zero to one and maybe i can write a blog on value parameters which is what i'm thinking about right now so i'll use that space for that and then you know like you i make lunch in the afternoon it's usually sandwiches and then i have to walk my dog so she will come in somewhere in between and then the second half is meetings and post processing what i do do these days is i use my emails as a way of thinking it used to be really functional when we were in person like you know just like short messages but i i find that now i use that as a chance to practice writing like if there is a quick question, I would, where possible, give a thoughtful response. Sometimes I flag it and say, this is blog length, so please park it away, but I want you to do pre-reading before we meet. So I'm experimenting with those kind of things. But the theme to all of this is, I find that writing clarifies my ability to know what I'm thinking about. Sometimes, this is today's example that we're thinking about, we have a couple of projects that we're doing for customers, our engineers are helping them out. And um, how do we get them to, you know, say it worked for us? And in writing the mail, it became clear how it should work for us. And so literally one of my team members wrote it and says, oh, now it's clear to me what I really want and continue writing the mail. So things like that. Um, that's generally the, the texture of my day. But my goal always is, so I structure it. You know, end of the day, I would do an inventory. I say, what have I accomplished? What's added to my list? you know create the sheet again the next day and put down my might do list not my to-do list and then go down again at the end of the day i kind of look it up and say okay what did i carry over so everybody has their workflows this has been working me for a few years which is have one highlight and then have a list of might do's and then do it over the next day but that's roughly how it's bucketed my um my ideal day has got about an hour and a half in the morning just for me about an hour in the afternoon for learning, you know, catching up on things. And then two to three hours somewhere for meetings and and uh, catching up on mails.
1: It's actually really interesting. I like talking to people, really getting to know their day. And um, obviously most of uh, the people I have spoken to, because I'm living in this bubble of uh, talking to the same set of people who do things similar to huh? what I'm doing right now are taking a similar approach especially i think after the initial um surprise of this whole pandemic uh it's kind of settled down and people really Mm -hmm. got into the groove okay this is going to be for the long term so we need to really figure out their lives and i think that's where they became very mindful about how they operate uh, and uh, not get into the zone of like, I like I like the example of, you know, using emails, not just as functional thing, but now a means to think. Um, I think I've seen these yeah. practices. So thank you for sharing that. I have a small clarifying question to something that you just said. Yeah. You talked about. Yeah. Uh, you talked about do list and not to do list. Share a little bit about of that.
0: A might do list, yeah. <laughs> it's it's a might do list.
1: Might do list, okay.
0: And uh, yeah, and this comes straight from Make Time with uh, Jake Knapp and, and Jake zaratsky, I think. Or is it John Zaratsky? Um and so the the insight is that there is a difference between um Determination and concentration. By that I mean, if you put down things on a list and saying it's to do, right? You, it's a determination that you will do it. You're making a promise to yourself and if you break it, it feels terrible. Like, oh man, look at that stuff I left undone. Whoa. Right? And a concentration is that I have a list of 15 things I don't think I can do all 15. I'm going to concentrate and see which ones I can. And not have a psychological whiplash at the end of it and start over again that self-criticism is not useful because that list is never done and you can look at all the systems of doing to-do lists from getting things done to what these guys say right it really helps to not punish yourself so the mind to list allows you to put down everything that you think needs to be done without feeling the guilt of completion saying i i've got my highlight for the day and sometimes it's a personal highlight i've got to get you know, uh, potassium for my cat who's in early stages of kidney disease and that's the most important thing for the day. If I get that done, I feel happy. I did something meaningful. And other times it's work. But outside of the highlight, I have a list of might do's and this is expanding. Right? It sometimes fills up the entire right side of my page, but I don't feel bad about it. If I take off anything from that list, I feel good. Right? So that framing has been useful for me, saying, you know, I might do this rather than to do.
1: I like that a lot. I think it's very interesting use of positive psychology uh, to really improve uh, your motivation and also your mental health. You don't have to worry about like going through so many tasks which are undone. So thank you. Uh, I think this book is amazing. I haven't read that. I have heard a lot about Jake Knapps, uh, especially about the design sprints. I think that's probably the book I read last of him. And I think, uh, awesome. Thank you. I I know we, we went to a lot of different topics but I really want to ask this question and that's where we go into the last part of our conversation today and I said today with an underline that I know we need to get back to this conversation because there's so many things that I would love to talk to in detail um, so imagine someone who's listening to this uh, this podcast and uh, really gets inspired and says okay this is what exactly I want to do um, and they may be an engineer like you they may be Um, a designer uh, of any particular role that uh, where they feel there's an opportunity to kind of, you know, build towards something that you are doing. What would be your advice for them to uh, especially start? um, What experiences do you think they should have? Um, If you could share a little bit of insight on that, that'll be really interesting for our audience.
0: Yeah. I was only really half joking when I said, you know, the mess that is in a career. I take the position that well, nobody can really give anybody advice about career because each one is like a piece of art, right? It was your own map. So the best I can do is share the experiments I've run on mine. And hope that some of the experiments make sense to you. But knowing fully well that your map is different from mine and you may have to come up with new experiments and I hope to learn from that. So with that in mind, I would say um, I think this business of passion is a little hokey. You you know it looking backwards. You can feel pulls. You can feel pulled towards certain things. Like I feel pulled into one material and not the other. And that's true. But is it long term or not you don't know so my approach has been to first of all try and do something that feels purposeful to me because I'm going to commit life energy and I consider life energy sacred and not to be wasted and I've also tried to always have a side bet this work comes from Cal Newport's book Deep Work which is um, oh no so it's not Deep Work it's the one before which is so good they can't ignore you which is you will not always be in the job that you like. You might also not know what you, you, you want instead. So place a few bets on the side which are inexpensive, right? Try something, try apprenticing, try moonlighting, whatever it takes to see what it feels like. And if that feels good, give it a little more energy. If it's not, don't give it any more energy. And so along the way, as you do one thing, you might find something that you thought was a small bet blows out into something larger. And that's been the case with me with, startup by design, my approach to teaching startups, the work I do with them, everything I've done with them is now fed right back into the academy and now the engineers are learning it, right? And so it's an alternative approach to the design process. And it's super pragmatic and it's evolved. But it was all started as a side bet. And same thing for personal passions. Maybe you think you like cooking, maybe you don't. Give it give it a little bit of time. Go for a course, a brief course, learn knife skills, try it out. See if it makes sense. And if you feel there is a pull for you, it'll stick. If not, don't bother. Keep going, right? And so that I feel is a useful way, like, you know, have a hypothesis, but gut check yourself and saying, okay, let me invest a little bit of time. That's mostly what I've done, right? And then I always have a very visceral feeling when I'm not adding value. So I know very clearly that this gig is done. There's nothing more here. But I don't know what else to do. So then I'll start the process again. That's been useful for me. But I pretty much believe that every career you will go through like three maybe four in a lifetime where you have to hopefully it won't be like a shift in your core discipline right you will still be an engineer or a designer but the way you apply it will be dramatically different you may be expected to apply engineering from a humanities lens rather than a pure engineer's lens and that will feel like a huge shift to you and so place a few bets and see if it works and then share with other people what you did
1: I like that a lot. I think placing bets, running experiments. Um that's that's probably I think I can summarize this entire conversation today. Um this one's are, the, big
0: bet to make the whole conversation. <laughs> <laughs> um,
1: we are almost done and I want to I don't want to close this conversation without asking. I think you share a lot of books and interesting recommendations, but um what are the books that, you, that really influenced you and you recommend people to read and reflect?
0: Mm. Um, I won't add any to the list. I mean, there's constantly something the other. Right now, I'm thinking about lifelong learning and mastery. So that's a whole new thing. But the classics for me was Dennis Sherwood and the, um, Seeing the Forest from the Trees if you're interested in systems thinking that's a really good way to jump into it it's really practical it's you know not abstract at all um, I mentioned make time which is really mm-hmm. useful for getting your day sorted um, so good they can't ignore you Cal Newport if you like Newport's work Deep Work is the next one yeah I love Deep Work right? oh, yeah. right? so really really practical stuff and the last thing I read which I found interesting um, let me think about that a second, a lot of psychological books that I would recommend, but not anytime soon. Mm, but I'm just walking around and seeing my stack. No, I would recommend it. But if you you should read it and tell me what do you think. It's called Pedagogy of the Oppressed. It's been recommended highly by bunches of people. It's the uh, it tells you why the education system is the way it is by Paulo Freire. But yeah, I'm, I'm. The premise is fascinating, which is education has looked at. He calls it deposit education. I've got a deposit knowledge in your head, <laughs> and you can only receive as an empty vessel, and that has consequences. So that's on my list. But I'll tell you how it goes once I finish reading it.
1: Thank you, thank you so much, yeah. Rana. Yeah. Um this has been fun. I mean, this is so interesting. We can continue talking we... about it. In a Thank long you. format, which I would love to do, and you know, uh, I will hunt you <laughs> to get all well, this. And
0: <laughs> yeah, if you if if your users don't throw up, then we can talk. But they're like, "What was that, Do You know what? what you guys yeah, about? I I
1: I have a high expectations from my from my from my readers and from my from my listeners. I think they demand I more. So, you know, I really love this conversation. There was so much to talk about and I really like this exchange. And yeah, I mean, uh, we should connect again. I think this is fantastic. This is brilliant. So thank you so much for your time. We went over the time, but I really appreciate, uh, you know, you being there. And uh, last small bits, like if someone wants to reach you, what is the right medium to get to you?
0: um the easiest would be and it's not a plug it's just a way for me to that's the only a site i have it's called startup by design so startup by dr design that's mm-hmm. where i do my thinking um so you know stop by leave a note or you, there's probably like a form that you can say high end so uh, fair warning that's where i put my work out for startups so it may not be me it's mm-hmm. just how i think about the startup process but that's probably a good way because i don't have multiple websites that's a good way for you to reach out to me i'm not on social media i'm not on twitter i'm not on facebook um so if you say post something there you won't hear back from me okay uh, Startup.design. startup
1: dot design startup by dot design is that right
0: Start design yeah exactly all right
1: all right i will leave that on the show notes so okay. people can find you
0: thank you so much
1: thank you and yeah it was fun and we, we will should talk chat. soon yeah you bet <laughs> absolutely all right take Thank you for joining this podcast. I hope this was useful and you learned a lot. For more such great podcasts, please do not forget to subscribe to the podcast channel In Your Shoes on SoundCloud, Spotify, and Apple Music. New podcasts are uploaded every two weeks. Goodbye.